0: I I probably am an outlier when it comes to um, this, but I I don't believe making sex work or keeping sex work illegal is the right choice. It it is, uh, I haven't really put a dent to a large degree. Now, making it legal where it's regulated, it has to be properly regulated. It has to have proper oversight and through that you could actually fund a component of the efforts to focus on the trafficked persons and those businesses that are bringing in traffic persons to work in in the sex trade that's that's one possibility
1: welcome to a movement of kindness and empathy you're listening to compassionate las vegas the podcast embarking on a mission to unite our city under the banner of compassion. We're one among 440 cities around the globe standing together to build a more compassionate world. Now introducing the man leading the charge, your host, Will Rucker. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and I am so grateful that you have been tuning in each and every week for season five of this journey of compassion, hope, and hopefully inspiration. Joining us today is someone that I am extraordinarily fascinated by. The work that this individual does, the vision, the creativity, the insight, I think you will also find quite intriguing. So, Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Will. So, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're
0: doing? Sure, sure. Well, I lived in Vegas since 94. I escaped California uh, shortly before that. And I was in law enforcement until 2017. Did a lot of things. I worked in a local state. I was on a federal task force where I really kind of got some focus over my passion in dealing with victims that are youthful and, and other crimes against persons types of investigations. I ended my career in law enforcement after 10 years in homicide. And then I went to work for a large a Fortune 500 global company where I handled their internal investigations globally for a couple of years as a director there. And this business that I'm running now was a dream of mine about early 2000. And I went full bore with it in 2020. And we've really built something that's entertaining and fun. And I think does some really good, useful, beneficial things for our community. And in the last year, I've been blessed is the first word that comes to my mind with a certain partner, Jonathan Alvarez with Protective Force International, in dealing with creating some programs that we're kind of here to talk about today.
1: Awesome.
0: Well, I i just learned to sense I don't think. I picked up
1: on some of that when we met earlier, so that's that's awesome. I appreciate all of that to set the foundation for our conversation. I just want to get your
0: insights on compassion. So, how would you define compassion? Compassion is very simple for me. It's caring, and to be quite honest with you, you know, when I was in law enforcement, being compassionate is hard because in any given day. You're an enemy to both of the people, that, you know, including the person that might have called and certainly the person that you might find there's a reason to have an arrest or some charges from a criminal side. But what I've realized as I've gotten older and as I did more things in law enforcement and certainly as I got out and started to skirt both worlds, the government and the private sector, I've realized that compassion is just that. Trying to find different ways to do something, not being stuck in a rut, and and then caring what the outcome is, not simply just doing something because that's your job or doing something because that's what you were told to do, but you want to see the end result. From a law enforcement standpoint, it's figuring out how not to come back to a situation so you can help both parties potentially navigate away and that criminal charges don't have to be the only um, avenue that you have to take and in this realm of trying to tackle human trafficking and, and bring more clarity to things like counter intelligence, those types of things, you have to have, be compassionate about what you're doing because in any realm, even in the private sector where you're talking about what security professionals do and their, their role is expanding more than it ever has, especially in in recent years with the asks, they're being placed in front of doing the right thing is paramount and finding a way to communicate that to your employees and, and finding options, putting, I guess, more tools on the tool belt, lack of a better term, for the people that have to do the work and they're realizing that nothing exists in a vacuum, whether it's law enforcement, private security, operating a business, there's other components. There's other people that play into it, that their input's important, the sources of information are important, and to discount anything uh, from any avenue that it's come to you or any direction you can take to get out of the situation you're in, to discount any of them just at a flip of a wrist is a mistake. So that's really... to, I guess a long answer to your question of what compassion is, it's literally caring and realizing that you're not the only person that matters. I think in, both of
1: those responses are, both those pieces are incredibly important, caring and getting outside of yourself. Was compassion a word that came up while you were in law enforcement? I mean, was that a, a subject It's
0: important. And, you know, a little bit of reflection on me. I thought my role in law enforcement when I was there was to be stoic, was was to not show emotion. And the things that I would see, you know, murdered children, dismembered bodies, sexually assaulted persons that, that have had to live. I've had of victims with successful prosecutions commit suicide. And then when you when you start seeing those things, I guess I didn't digest them well when I was actually in law enforcement. And the current sheriff of Sheriff McBahl recently created a section within LVMPD called the Wellness Bureau. It's a great step forward to kind of have some of that ability to realize that you're just human. You're not robots. These are things that you see that you have to digest, and if you don't spend time digesting them, eventually you're going to have to face them. And since I've retired, I've realized uh, that that was a flaw in my character and that I should have been more open to the effects these things had on me and how they would have those effects on my family. And that just comes with age. And it also comes with the ability to look at yourself and realize that we just aren't perfect. And that if you ever think you know everything, or if you ever think that you've you've got the bull by the horns and there's just no reason for anyone else's input, you're fooling yourself. And I I think, as I've gotten older and I've had different experiences in my life over the last 10 years, I've learned a lot of those things that have opened me up considerably more to being compassionate, and finding different ways to solve a problem that are unique outside the box. Yeah,
1: and I mean, I think that's a perfect segue into the Global Security Operations Center project. So what led you to focus in on anti-human trafficking in particular, and what's its relevance here in the Valley?
0: A lot to unpack there, so I'll kind of try and and keep it keep it short. The reality is, and to talk about me for one more second, is I'm motivated by people telling me it can't be done or it's been done and we've failed. Because I, I think that's what I talked about earlier is that closed-minded approach that just because something's been done a certain way forever doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. and doesn't mean it's going to give you the best outcome to get things done. And if I'm going to flip back to my experiences in dealing with child pornography, human trafficking, sexual—you know—victimization of of anybody, including certainly children. A lot of the battles I had, both locally and and federally, when we were doing some of the investigations, is that pushback of it's a victimless crime, child pornography, and that struck me as as harsh. Head in your sand approach to the larger uh, problem. And if you look at the transition in law enforcement, especially when you're talking about vice investigations, human traffic investigation, they're starting to realize that an arrest of the victim, and I use that um, in air quotes, because often a lot of the people that are being trafficked, not necessarily just for sex work, but you know, for other reasons of people get trafficked is those people are forced into that situation for one
1: reason or another. Share just because, you know, most people think of the the sexual aspect of trafficking, but what are some of the other areas that people are forced into?
0: Employment, uh, cheap labor. They won't be as as blatant. Mm -hmm. But there's a component that I realized back in an investigation in 2009, and a large component, one segment of the town that is off-strip, where there are a lot of trafficked people, whether they might be forced into committing fraud and forgery at some of the casinos, and we can talk about that later if you want, but also the sex trafficking. Sex, sex trafficking is probably one of the largest here in in Las Vegas because of the exposure from a global standpoint we have. You have all the casinos, you have all of the special events. You have a lot of money and a lot of people who travel here, sometimes specifically to have those experiences with sex workers off strip and sometimes even on strip and. The reality is that it's there and it's shocking how much it's overlooked. And when you talk about other countries, a lot of children in labor, forced labor for lower wages so we can buy cheaper shirts, so we can buy cheaper electronics. And that's a reality. There is a a federal program called the TVPA, Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And I suggest people go research that. There are reports and statistics that they publish so you can kind of get a handle on the numbers globally that are at least known. And and when you get down to tracking these numbers, it's really hard. Some of it's guesswork. Some of it comes from law enforcement actions, and some of it comes from the nonprofits and the people that are actually in the trenches trying to rescue uh, these victims who are being moved from one country or one state to another to perform activities, whether it be sex work or, or em, employment, uh, things like that.
1: Well, thank you for that additional insight, because it's it's something that most of us, I think, are aware of, but choose not to keep at the front of the mind. Uh, it's, it's very it, difficult to yeah. um, consider that, especially when you're talking about children. And you mentioned like the child pornography and how people consider that a victimless crime and sort of things. Uh, Before we move forward to kind of what you're doing around this with your programs, how did you personally decompress when you dealt with these atrocities of humanity? How did you keep getting up day after day and continue forward?
0: You know, a lot of these things that happen from a criminal nature, whether it's homicide, robbery, uh, sexual assaults. The unfortunate thing is they've happened forever. Um, They happened before I was in law enforcement or in the position I'm at now. And they certainly continue to happen after I left law enforcement or when I'm not necessarily in that space where we're trying to affect change um, around potentially that activity. But the way I digested it was you know, someone had to pay attention. Someone had to do the work. And, and that's, I am very much a ask for forgiveness, not permission kind of guy when, when I do those types of investigations. And I probably sum it up better with the life experience I had when I was in California, starting out my law enforcement career in 89. I, I was kind of told I should pay attention to more along the lines of the crimes against persons, especially, you know, sexual assault and those type of intricate crimes. And I didn't understand at the time I was 20, all I wanted to do was, you know, run around, hut, 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 and and have fun and do those things. But what I found is I kept showing to events and I would see people not doing the right things. And I mean, other law enforcement officers. I would see them doing just the bare minimum to kind of pass things through, just like I said, to get things done and off their plate to move off. And it never set well with me. So I would always end up taking over the investigations where I could to try and get to a certain point where due attention was paid um, to those events. I didn't like them. And I didn't really fully understand until I got later into my career that what I was trying to do... Before I made the decision to take over that call, lack of a better term, is I was not paying due attention to who I was and what I needed to do. And once I started to learn that, I became much better at my job. And it was that diligence, that focus to be able to at least get down to the point where when I had a criminal case, we could get a conviction uh, and I could do the best I could to safeguard uh, the victim and their families. And through that, what I realized, to segue into your next question, I think, is I realized the help that the victims and the survivors were getting was sporadic, wasn't always consistent, uh, it was sometimes disconnected, oftentimes fall short, and that came from a, a lack of coordination amongst all the parties. Uh, victim services. There there was one child who was kidnapped and sexually assaulted out in the desert here, and he survived. And his family, I spent with a victim advocate a full day trying to get them placed into a hotel because they were trying to move back to their home state. And through getting all that work, that one day turned into two to three days of just doing the victim advocacy work with the victim advocate to try and make sure they were taken care of. To get them some mode of transportation back home, and the number of hoops we had to jump through, the the number of doors that slammed in our face to try and do the right thing was 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 astonishing. And so I I kept notes, lack of a better term, on what I'm seeing and where I'm seeing the shortfall. Yeah, sure, I could run in and arrest somebody. Like I said, that's only half the battle. Right. Uh, And teaching a survivor how to navigate through what's happened to them so they can grow and survive and, and be content in life and not let it let it eat them up or 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 not get let them get stuck into a corner where they feel like what happened to them is their fault and that they're some way responsible for it. And mental health, uh, job placement, job training, just giving them a place to live sometimes and, and a safe avenue to to take the time to digest their reality in a safe way with some feedback. I saw so many holes in it and I I don't see anything largely has changed much. And that's where this project with Jonathan uh, really struck a chord with me and I'm happy to be part of it. All right, well then let's dive into the project.
1: Thank you for sharing a bit of your heart in it as well. I always am interested in, in person uh Beyond just the work. But let's talk about some of these, I guess, gaps that you're seeking to fill with these threat assessments. And, uh, you know, I, I did read up a little bit about what you're doing. So I'm going to kind of skip around, but I'm no expert. Like this is all a total curiosity here. Right. But wondering with trafficking in, in particular, this system of care, and can you explain this system and what it entails? how it will operate, what it does. Like, tell me all the things.
0: Sure, sure. I, I'm going to go in chronological order because that's how my brain kind of works okay. a little bit so I don't forget anything. So when Jonathan came to me with the idea of the GSOC, the, and that's the Global Security Operations Center, the one of the things he realized, because he's boots on the ground and does a lot of good work in this town, not only for providing professional security officer uh, to deal with the day-to-day, but he gets involved in, in uh, search events, looking for missing and exploited children here in town, and does a lot of those events. And he realized that there is no entity that consistently fills a gap between when nothing is happening and when law enforcement is needed. Now, there are there's a fusion center and there's a real-time uh, crime center that Metro operates, they're both very good. They're very law enforcement centric, and they need to be. And they fill that role and do a good job, a very good job in that role. But what we have in town is when an event comes, you see temporary SOCs or security operations centers pop up. And then when the event's over, they close down. They have a very specific purview for that event. And there's nothing else that exists after it. And then on top of that, you'll have certain entities in town that have their own siloed SOC or security operations center. They don't share information with other SOCs and often don't share very well with each other because of perceived intellectual property or privacy concerns. They just don't. And what Jonathan came to me with was that idea of, can we create something that has a a revenue stream to it that'll make it survive but where other companies that can't afford to open up their own SOP because it is very cost prohibitive can be a member of this and then through that we can get all the different pieces of information to come together and then we can start to share it because the reality is if there's an event let's say at Flamingo on the Boulevard then the bad actors largely don't stay on that property they stay elsewhere some rentals some off strip hotels they bring in what crews either locally or from other places and then they assemble and they go through their activities and and then they go back out if a bad event happens at that location they're going to scramble around town to those locations where they still feel safe and away so we want to break those silos and we want to make sure all this Disconnect information can be connected. So that's what he spoke to me about. I know his passion with the human trafficking, especially and the counterterrorism intelligence, the need for that to be 24-7 and interconnect all of these um, sources of information, because then we can assist and provide more information to the fusion center and Metro or whatever law enforcement agency needs to get involved. And that's what led over to the idea of the system of care that's really going to focus at trying to bring together all those disconnected multidisciplinary teams that are involved in human trafficking and assessing counter intelligence down into a defined uh, operating procedure okay. that operates with MOUs or memos of understanding and operating agreements. So everyone's on the same page. Everyone gets the same general training. They have to have a program in place where they can monitor the services they're providing, the work they're doing, and then undergo regular audits to make sure that these people that are involved in the activities of rescues, placement, training, education, those types of things are doing what they're said they were going to do to begin with. So it's just that whole process of making sure that all these disconnected systems come together and function as a whole. And that's the idea of the system of care.
1: So I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but one of our most popular episodes this season has been where we focused in on AI, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a AI component to this. So how does that work? What technologies are you leveraging? And uh, what safety protocols are you putting in place? Because of course, you know, terrorists have AI too. So tell me a little bit, a, a little bit more about that.
0: I love AI. And it, it also scares me in one sense, because a lot of people don't appreciate what it is. When I deploy AI in my business, very particular that we understand what someone's asking for, what they're trying to do, and then how do we implement it into an operating procedure that makes sense. So in other words, if you expect AI to do the work of a room full of video analysts, you're mistaken. But what it can do is make what you have more efficient. And to understand first off that artificial intelligence. And it's a very broad term when we talk about certain things we can drill down more. So in that, in this example, I'm going to talk about video analytics with AI. There are things that work. There are things that kind of work and are probably best suited for maybe a proof of concept and some training and some learning. And there's things that just don't work yet. Okay. They They just are very hard to accomplish and you get far more false positives doing the that than you do using something that you know works the problem with ai is a lot of people are being sold on what doesn't work because it's flashy you know uh, weapons detection bite detection things like that will they get to the point where they can be reliable and work i think they're getting very close but you have to be really careful on on what you're trying to implement And that and that's a good example of of the ai that we want to implement is they are tools to make it more efficient for what employees or volunteers you have doing the work. Very good at bringing in lots of pieces of data and assembling them into a logical form. Um, it was very helpful. And when I look back at my investigative career, if I had had some of these tools that would process video, whether for pattern recognition, license plate readers that can pick up certain pieces of of data and make it searchable so you can piece uh, the data together much more quickly. That just makes you getting to a point where a human can look at it and digest things so much more quickly that your actions then become relevant because you're more timely when you're intervening in something. And I, I don't mean intervention from a standpoint of law enforcement. Intervention could literally be from a standpoint of identifying some of the needs to be rescued Mm -hmm. and being able to communicate them and then have that system of care that has all the different components where everybody knows the same language. Everyone knows who has space, capacity, and knows what they're going to do. And they can bring the right resources to bear uh, to effect a rescue. That's the ultimate goal, like in human trafficking, is to get that person out of that environment that piece, the criminal right. investigation could be later. That piece that you mentioned, though, right there
1: is, I think, something that even nonprofits could utilize. Because one of the challenges that I've encountered is, you know, folks will call the agency I used to work for. Can you do X, Y, and Z? No, that's outside of our scope. Or no, we don't have capacity. Well, such and such gave us your information. They said you did this. <laughs> it's like, no. But I do see a, a place where AI could be like, you know, Here's the one that you should go to. Here's their real-time capacity Um, on something, you know, as simple as trying to get a gas card or a bus card. And I'm not making light of the need of that. It's just, that's something that's relatively uh, simple to address. I'm also thinking, like when I go through TSA, they have those little spinner machines and then they put the square on you as like, this is where we need to check. Is that a AI technology
0: or similar to what you're working with? It kind of is. And they have other, I mean, do we have some weapons detection partners that we could bring in and deploy? Sure. They have to be used in the right environment. Okay. And again, with AI, so many people try and place a, a certain type of technology that works well in one environment into a different environment. For an example, and I don't want to say names, but one location here in town tried those uh, weapons detection systems in an open flow environment. And they're not made for open flow. They're made for a c- constrained, focused funnel of people that go through like an event or maybe into the trauma center at, at the hospital where they care about what people might be bringing into a, a particular area. So there's a funnel and a controlled access, but just throwing it out in the middle of a free range movement of crowds didn't work so well. And that was just, thankfully, they were doing it as a proof of concept to see if it could work, but that was not the right use of that technology that they had in that example.
1: Right. So I kind of jumped in and and switched your gear just a little bit. So I want to get back to Uh, kind of how this is applicable and maybe let's talk a bit about the laws that are in place because you'd have that law enforcement background, but just kind of give me your perspective on some of those laws and what changes
0: you would recommend. I, I probably am an outlier when it comes to, um, this, but I, I don't believe making sex work or keeping sex work illegal is the right choice it is, uh, I haven't really put a dent to a large degree. Now making it legal where it's regulated, it has to be properly regulated. It has to have proper oversight. And through that, you could actually fund a component of the efforts to focus on the trafficked persons and those businesses that are bringing in trafficked persons to work in in the sex trade. That's That's one possibility. I think if I was going to look at changing laws, the one that we want to change and what I'm pushing forward right now with with right at beginning stages trying to get sponsorship up Carson City, it is years ago, decades ago, they changed the domestic violence laws because back when law enforcement show up and let's say, a husband beat his wife. If she chose not to prosecute, everyone walked away, left them together in a house. And because of the groups that were working and educating lawmakers about the dynamics between that relationship between cohabitants or husband and wife, uh, they realized that the mechanism, that relationship they have is such that they're not most people aren't going to press charges. And so we're leaving somebody in a dangerous situation where the state or the local jurisdiction needs to step in and operate absent of the victim pressing charges, the state or the jurisdiction becomes the victim, quote unquote. Hmm. We want to change hmm. the law in Nevada to use that same mechanism between a trafficker and a trafficked person because the dynamics between the two of them are, are so similar. In some cases identical to that domestic cohabitation relationship yeah. and it's forged on the same level of violence control mental control drug addiction uh things along those lines so to change the trafficking law to include that would be a huge step in the right direction that i think would do significantly more good than just making sex work legal because uh Are there sex workers out there that want to be in that industry? Absolutely. And and should uh, have a chance to work in that career in certain parts of the state, they can legally. Right. It just here in Clark County, it's not legal. We could have that discussion for another time. The, The bigger component of what I'm looking at are the people that are in that industry amongst other industries. Uh, like employment and uh, tax fraud is a good example, and I can explain that later, but they get brought into the country per se and are for massage parlors in some cases. I mean, if you've seen some of those around town, are are home to some people who are currently victims of trafficking. But changing that law doesn't just affect the people that are trafficked for sex work, but it also can affect the people that are trafficked for other reasons. And so I think you have a better uh, benefit. It gives more power to this, to law enforcement when they have the investigation in front of them to take action. Right now, it's requisite on them to find a victim who'll cooperate. And from a prosecution standpoint, which the target in that realm is to focus on the trafficker. And it makes it really hard to do that when you can't bring a criminal case against them easily. And I, I think that'll be a better law change, to be honest with you. And that's the one we're focused on is making sure that we can get some traction in that direction.
1: So what is the political will behind something like that? Have you found folks that have an interest? Is it a coalition that you're
0: building? Give me a little bit more
1: insight on that.
0: This is ground floor stuff, both the GSOC and and the system of of care. And it's a coalition of sorts we're building, and it's part of that system of care because there are groups out there that are involved in anti-human trafficking efforts. There are rescue organizations, and they all have separate voices. They all have different abilities to communicate with and get things done at different levels, locally, statewide, federally. And the idea behind that system of care, which you can call a coalition if you want, is to have everything focused with a single group of support. And the reality with that system of care is to, like you just kind of alluded to earlier, if, let's say, a security officer is at an event and identifies potential person who's being trafficked. Awareness training is important, but I don't think awareness training is sufficient. What's lacking is skills-based training. And so when you start giving proper training to let's say the security officers, then they not only recognize this is what I'm seeing, but now I know what to do, and then you prevent or pre-established channels through which they're going to funnel through that process so that they don't get a no, or I don't have capacity, or you've made the wrong call, I don't do that. Everyone is going to be on the same page. And you can do that through some really cool uh, electronic software programs that can help track all those processes. But again, to kind of break out that mold, the system of care doesn't talk about Looking at things from a training, we're just going to train security officers, housekeeping, room service, valet, ticket takers at an event. These are the people that are in the trenches day to day. They're going to see movements. They're going to walk into a room and see something that just doesn't look right. Or they might be a maintenance who's walking around the hallways of, of one of the casinos or one of the hotels in town and might hear something and they could put two and two together. But because they would have been through some basic training, they'll know what to say when they talk to security. And security will know, all right, I, I understand what you're talking about, and this is what we have to do. And if they compile enough to involve law enforcement, let's do that. If we only have enough right now, we can facilitate a rescue and then you know, handle with the law enforcement later, then we can do that as well. Part of the battle with human trafficking is in some of these events and these locations. is make it inhospitable for these bad actors to come and do business, make it not profitable for them so that they aren't welcome there. They don't make money there. Uh, that's one component of it, but the more important thing, like I said before, is how do we successfully rescue some of these trafficked people, for an example. If you are from another country and you were trafficked into this country, there's a capacity to, if you're a victim of trafficking, to fast track you through naturalization so you can stay here. That means you can get a social security card, you can get a job, you can get a place to live and power. You're facilitating a pathway for a victim to feel safe to escape their, their tormentor. Does that hopefully that makes yeah. sense? And, and And that's that's the larger capacity or larger focus of what we want to do with the system of care is all those components are out there floating around, but they're siloed. Some parts don't talk well to another part and trying to get everybody on the same page here locally so that everyone is aware of what the other part's doing, what the other part might need, and that you can support when it's relevant. Uh, And in the correct way. So having legal partners that can offer that type of uh, immigrant service to someone who might be from another country so they can, all right, how do I I get from point A to point B? Work placement programs, work training, things along those lines, education, having those resources where you have those pathways kind of pre-built. So it's like, I don't have to spend three days like I did years ago, just trying to figure out some way to get somebody a bus pass to go from here to back east.
1: Well, time has gone so quickly. There's so much to dive into in this. And you're doing, uh, as you mentioned, it's it's the ground floor. You're you're building something that is what I feel is revolutionary. In 30 seconds, what is the message that you want our audience to take away?
0: Well, through Jonathan's support and with Protective Force International, our first developmental sprint uh, that we're taking a dive at for the GSOC or the Global Security Operations Center is happening in February of 2024. And right now we are building strategic partners to be a part of that development and implementation, which will probably roll out in phases over 2024. But also to follow that is gonna be the system of care developmental sprint that needs to take place. And we've got some key partners now. We're looking for some more involvement for for key partners. So if anybody knows entities that would like to be involved in this or want more information, have them reach out to me. I'd like to have more input. The more input, the better. Uh, if anyone's been involved in a developmental sprint, you know that they can six to 12 months of the work down into roughly a couple of weeks. To develop everything out so i'd like to put that out there that if there's anyone who's interested or knows any entities that might be interested connect them with me and i'd love to sit down with them and talk and figure out if, if we can work out some sort of operating agreement or understanding to continue to move forward whatever support we can get we'll take because this is a large lift and we've got a lot of interest not only on the public side but the private side so it's just a, a race to get it to implementation and the GSOC will start to implement at some point in 2024, once we layer out the things and the developmental work that we have to do in February. Awesome. And how do folks get in touch? Uh, through my website, they can get in touch with me. I don't know if you can place that on the information. Yeah, on can your can put a graphic down, but
1: for our listening audience, why don't you spell it
0: out for me? Okay. Clinical Consulting and Advisors is the name of my company at uh, thepcadvisors.com is how you can get to our webpage and all the contact information is there. We do a lot more than just me sitting here, you know, being a talking head. I have other partners and other components of what we do. It's all related to health, safety, risk management, and, and efficiencies and getting companies to work through a standard and have all oversight. And controls in place so they don't waste money they don't drop the ball and yeah you'll, you'll read more about it on the web page but all my information sir awesome well joel thank you
1: so much for sharing this with us for bringing this important matter to light it's a heavy subject for sure but i think that what you shared gives us hope for a future where this is not a prevalent issue and we're People are really free is what I'm hearing from you. So thank you for that work. Thank you for being a visionary in that space. And of course, for your time today.
0: Absolutely. And last thing I'll say is the, the answer is always no. If you never ask, never try. And that that's what we're doing. We see a reason for this. We see a, a space for it. And we think we can do some real good in this community and in several of those components, especially human trafficking. And the proper legitimate use of counterterrorism intelligence, uh, but it'll be game changing. And so we got to try.
1: This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker. And as I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean, you are the entire ocean in a drop. And what you do matters. So live compassionately. I'll see you next time.